Hey, everybody, just a uh, reminder for this week's episode. It is somewhat below the standard audio quality for Gameable due to an error with the recording setup. At least for me, it doesn't detract too much. But just know that this one is below par on my end. The problem has been found and should not affect next month's episodes. So if you are an audio quality snob and uh, no shame for that, don't let this dissuade you from joining us next month uh, when we're going to have some really great episodes with audio quality that is up to snuff. Fingers crossed. With that said, enjoy this concluding episode about Fireball XL5. Welcome to episode number 48 of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast, a tabletop role-playing podcast. We're watching cartoons from across the era of Saturday morning animation, delving into their plots, settings, and characters for gaming inspiration. And sometimes, when forced, we talk about puppets. I'm Chris Newton. And I'm Eric Danko. Uh, And we are back to talk about Fireball XL5, a strange show. We discussed its plots last time. I think came to the general conclusion that they are fun to watch, maybe not... The, the not eight. so fun to play. Yeah, <laughs> not not where you should be taking your inspiration. But there is a ton to talk about in this show other than plots for sci-fi gaming. So I'm I'm really excited to get into that. Before we do, though, you mentioned last time, this is a, a rare situation where I have someone on the podcast who is in an actual campaign with me. Um, I think it's... Yeah. Uh, and who has been my GM. I think other than that, it's just uh, Katrina and uh, Doug from our Star Trek The Animated Series episodes. Oh, wow. So let's talk a little about like where you you said you sort of landed on Call of Cthulhu as like your game of choice. And I can attest that that campaigns worked really well. Mm -hmm. As we're about to embark on this whole thing of like adapting this material, I'm just interested, like, why have you sort of settled on Call of Cthulhu in this way? I really like systems that prioritize uh, drama and storytelling over tactics. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I, I said last time I, I started with D&D because that's kind of the gateway drug to, to RPGs for many, many children. Um, and I was very quickly frustrated by how easily it could get bogged down in numbers and debates and looking through spell books and all sorts of other procedural things, which can be handled well by experienced players and an experienced DM or can very easily just disintegrate. Hmm. Um I eventually landed on Call of Cthulhu because the system is incredibly easy to learn. Uh, it can be employed really, really sparsely in situations where it's more important to have drama. And I, I just like scary stuff. And so <laughs> the setting of Call of Cthulhu is just a natural fit for me. I've been um, really enjoying the pace of the campaign that you run. I think that it's very different, even for a horror game from other games that I've played. I've done sort of horror-focused World of Darkness, where it's tended to be a a relatively high volume of sort of like tragedy or scares or whatever it is the GM is going for. Whereas in your campaign, it does seem to be much more of a slow burn, much more investigative, sort of what I imagine, Yes, you know, Call of Cthulhu as an RPG is intended to be, which has always struck me as interesting. I feel like almost like Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, is a very separate genre from the Cthulhu stories, you know, from the Lovecraft mythos. Yeah, it it can be. It can be played to be very similar to it, but I think it works better the way that we've been doing it. I, I think Lovecraft could, <laughs> he could get very technical uh, mm-hmm. in his descriptions of things, and sometimes it ends up being a little bit cold. And some of it is just that it was written 
almost 100 years ago, but some of it was definitely him. Yeah, yeah. His his verbiage and um, his style, uh, you know, and sometimes it works. Like I think um, at the Mountains of Madness, I find that the sense of like we were on this expedition and like here's all the details and it slowly unfolds, that works really well. But I think you're right that like that aspect of Lovecraft style sometimes does not necessarily serve his material. Right. I, what I find interesting is that in when I play Call of Cthulhu, the investigation is much more sort of granular and really like sort of simulates a process of almost, uh, it almost feels like discovery in a court case. You know, it's like you're gathering these little bits of evidence and piecing them together in some way. Yeah, it really is. Um, and I think maybe it, I don't honestly know how typical that is of somebody running Call of Cthulhu. I know that the person from whom I learned to run Call of Cthulhu ran it that way to great effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I instantly fell in love with it. And that is canon for me now. And I think that comes partly out of the system and partly out of good GMing practices for that system. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at a uh, Delta Green, which we were just talking about off mic, yeah. like, I think a very insightful take on how does Call of Cthulhu work as a role-playing game, given the now like having tested it, having that be sort of like a, really a, a an influential role-playing game. And also the role-playing game itself was highly influential on the way that people perceive the mythos. Um, that was enough experience to say, well, Call of Cthulhu works great as an RPG in this, this, and this way. But what's weird about it is it's a bunch of regular people who aren't really qualified to do this, who <laughs> yeah. even expect to continue chasing monsters for years on end. Um, so maybe let's try a version of this, but you're professionals in a job that involves investigation and dealing with danger so that you can stick with it. Right. Um, it leads to longer lasting characters in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also somewhat recent, I don't remember if it came out for previous editions, but for seventh edition, the most recent edition, particularly, there is um, Pulp Cthulhu, which mm-hmm. establishes rules for characters to last a little bit longer through making them a little bit beefier and more capable psychologically of handling, you know, uh, Lovecraftian horrors, uh, as well as adding in other pulp things, like, you know, like psychic powers and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, there's that question of competence. And there's also a question of motivation there. And like, realistically, how long can you expect a typical horror story victim to stay in a horror story? Right. <laughs> I guess what brings this to mind is that when we talk about XL5, there often is this discovery aspect to the plot as simplistic as it is. And there is that sort of step by step like, we're on a mission, we have to handle this, then this, then this. Yes, it is very procedural in some ways. Yeah, and so it's interesting to me to think about, like, what people's different GMing preferences are and, and player preferences are, because I think that has everything to do with how we're going to adapt this material. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will sit still for three sessions of slowly figuring out what the aliens are up to, where they are, how do we get to them, how do we then get into their base, and now let's execute and complete this mission other people need it to be pulpier, need it to be punchier. <laughs> yeah. Know? And there needs to be like a big hit of like alien weirdness every session at least to keep it moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point. And I I instantly went when I was thinking about how to gamify this show, I instantly went to that place of action and fast moving drama. But an argument could be made for either way. Yeah. Uh, either way will will require changes to the show. Sure. And it depends on, like, what do we do here? Are we primarily a team on a mission, or are we really going to... Am I more interested in playing the captain of a fireball vessel, or am I more interested in playing square-jawed Steve Zodiac? Bingo. Which brings us neatly to characters. So let's discuss which characters from the show we would prefer to play in a round of I'd Play That.
you are first ride play that this week. Who would you play from this show? Um, I'm gonna be super risky, and I'm gonna say I'd like to play Robert the Robot. Robert the Robot, wow. Yep. Defend yourself. Um, okay. I think in various episodes, he's seen to have agency, uh, to have independence. And although he plays along with the various crew members and does what they say, I am not convinced that he actually has to. I think either he is playing along nice, or they realize it, uh, you know, the whole crew realizes it, and, and he just kind of, you know, operates as a, as a co-crewman with all of them. Yeah, I mean, it makes a certain degree of sense because it is like a little military outfit. And so it's possible that what we're interpreting for the most part as like, he is a robot and must do his command. It could just be like, he's at the bottom of the pecking order. Yeah, like that's his, that's his job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I, I mean, what immediately strikes me about that is like, well, what are we going to do with all, you know, the deep, meaningful conversations that the crew is having? Like, <laughs> but that's more of a Star Trek problem. Like, right. And as I just said, I went straight to the action-y uh, interpretation of this, which Robert's going to excel at. Yeah, yeah. It lends itself, you know, as we were just talking about, to sort of imagining the play experience. If I'm imagining a version of this where somebody's playing Robert, that's like, we've talked on the show before about like couch style play. Yes. Like we're all sitting in a living room. You're over in the easy chair. Like maybe you're on your phone some of the time. Maybe you're you're like making burritos during the campaign. But then Robert is necessary. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That definitely lends itself to that kind of play. Yes, it could. Especially because you're in a group that's not going to be antagonistic toward that. Like if we're all, if we're all like, you know, drama nerds trying to do improv, then we don't want you going to do your burrito thing during the campaign. But if we all have a job to do, as long as you're doing that job as Robert. Right. And I also don't think that, uh, that robots in Fireball, given that, given the premise that robots are independent, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they all need to be as basic intellectually as Robert necessarily. Mm If we were to treat robots as player characters, surely they could have stats that, you know, in, intelligence stats or something that w- might be higher than ro- than Robert. Yeah, uh, more capable of conversation, diplomacy, that kind of thing. Sure. That's a good point. And it, and it raises the prospect, which I think we'll inevitably get to, of using these characters as templates for something like a character class, mm-hmm. as opposed to playing these characters per se. Yes. Um, I, there are lots of fireball vessels, so... You know, if we don't want to play these characters specifically, there's an analog. To right. That. I think that's an open door right there. Since yeah. we know that there are potentially, I think the highest number I ever heard was 51. Like oh, there, wow. there are tons of fireballs all over the place. For me, I'm going to go, I actually had a hard time with this. I, I had a little bit of difficulty choosing one. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's an overly appealing cast generally, but there are two kind of modes of play I'm interested in. But I think I'm ultimately going to land on Commander Zero. Aha. Uh-huh. Um I felt like the obvious choice here was Steve, right? Steve Zodiac. Oh yeah. Well, he's anyone who wants to play like Zap Brannigan is gonna is gonna play mm-hmm. Steve Zodiac. Yeah, yeah. Um, he is. I mean, not only is he that great, like dashing, bold character, um, you know, who gets to be the captain and run around and rescue everybody, but also he is sort of at the center of executing the mission. So if your game is going to be about that, it puts you right in the middle of the action. Yes. Um, so that would be fun. Commander Zero, though, is so appealing to me in a different way. Because yeah, you've chosen a character who isn't even on the ship. Yeah, and I keep trying to kind of get around to different ways of playing this. And the more I look at these plots and the more I look at this world, I feel like in the Federation, like in Star Trek, you wouldn't play the ambassador back at Starbase. No, because they show up in a 30-second clip and then they're gone and whatever they said is only data. It's yeah. information. It's, it's exposition yeah. or it is like 
uh, uh, shaping the dramatic situation. Like, whatever you do, you must not cross the neutral yes. zone. Yes. And once they're off the screen, we have no idea, nor are we invested in what they're doing. Exactly. Whereas here, the perspective back on Earth is key, and Commander Zero is the essential thing in that. Sure, yeah. The Forbidden Planet being a good example of that. I mean, not the Forbidden Planet, the day the Earth froze. Yeah, yeah. And in a lot of these episodes, I think that having somebody at base, it, it makes it feel more like this military vessel out on a mission to have somebody giving the orders back home at like flight control. That really appeals to me. And if we could find a way to work it in, I would love to be in that role where somebody else kind of gets the, I feel like sometimes as an experienced role player, you want that where like you want to give somebody else the glory of doing the running and jumping. Yeah, you sort of serve in the the overseer sort of role. Yeah, I, th- I think <laughs> GMs can become um, habituated to being facilitators at the table. So even mm-hmm. when you're playing a character, it's like, who can I play that will help all the other players have a good time? Right. And that that appeals to me. And I also just like, I like Space City because it is more distinctive than Fireball. Like, I like the ship, but it's not so different from any, you know, old pulp sci-fi serials rocket ship. Why do you think it spins around anyway? Why does Space City spin around? <laughs> um, I d- uh, pigeons. Okay. Yeah. Keeps the pigeons off. Yep. Yep. It, it just, they, they have a serious pigeon problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I have no idea why that building spins. <laughs> I, you know, you, I mean, my first thought is, okay, well, you know, like satellite arrays or like satellite dishes. <laughs> but just move. spin the satellite dish. <laughs> Not the whole building. It's like 80 stories tall. Possibly this is one a classic Professor Matic blunder. <laughs> they didn't catch it until they built the thing. You know, Professor. <laughs> it appears I put the servos in the wrong place. <laughs> um, everybody had a good laugh. Credits roll. <laughs> um, yeah, but but I yeah I like Space City a lot. It's weird that like everybody lives there in their off hours. Like it's a city and it's a base. Yeah. Um, they've got like all the sensor equipment there. It's again, different from Star Trek where the ship has the sensors and they get a, the lay of the situation and make decisions on the ground here. Often they're getting the, their information from back at base. That's a very golden age of sci-fi thing though. That's mm-hmm. there's definitely precedent for that in other, oh, sure. in other uh, pulpy sci-fi medium. Oh yeah. It's, it's yeah. not distinctive to fireball, but it is there and it's meaningful in the in the show and it it serves as material to play off of yeah and and there's more to branch off of there i find because we could develop space city i have lots of questions about space City. oh yeah i don't particularly have questions about like these planet of the week monsters or like how fireball operates as a vessel but i've got lots of questions about space city and i could explore that as commander zero yes if we can make it work what do you think about these characters in general. Do you, how promising do you think this cast is for like sitting down and actually playing them? Uh, hardly at all. They're, they're almost interchangeable much of the time. Every once in a while you get some flavor from one of them, mm-hmm. but um, they are all highly molded according to their circumstances. You know, they're, they're all stupid when the story <laughs> demands it and they, any of them are capable of saving the day when the story demands it. And not in distinctive ways either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see the distinction that you're making there yep. because every character has flaws and so you can exploit that flaw to kind of put them on the wrong end of something when the plot demands it. Right, like the closest thing I saw to an individual flaw was the professor's glasses fogging up mm-hmm. in the in the day the earth froze. Yeah, and that stood out. Yes. As like unusually interesting yes. construction of a... Steve does not wear glasses. His glasses <laughs> cannot fog up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, his, you know, perfect jeans. Yes. <laughs> He's blonde, he's square-jawed, he doesn't need glasses. Nope. Yeah, yeah, I I tend to agree. I think these are largely stock characters. And 
And as I was saying before, though, that then opens the opportunity that, like, maybe let's use these more as character classes. Yes, it opens up a chance to build character creation off of archetypes. Mm-hmm. The captain, the engineer, the doctor, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say archetype there, because, it, again, it lends itself to, like, two different ways to game this. I can envision a, a sort of archetype or character class for Steve that emphasizes that he's the dashing captain. He's the action lead. Yeah. He's the bold explorer. I can equally envision a situation where it's sort of like a skill package that relates to being the in charge of a fireball vessel, like being a pilot and commander. Oh, yeah. That's more skill-oriented, and you needn't necessarily be bold. And that really speaks to which way you're going to play this. Mm-hmm. Because if we're looking at it from the pulp side, it's totally that he's bold, right? Like, he could be an archaeologist, or he could be like an action military scientist in contemporary 1960s, or he could be, you know, whatever. It's The point is, he's bold and he's blonde, and he runs around. Yep. From a pulp perspective. And he will save the day. Yeah. If we're more interested in doing space simulation, then I think it's the piloting skills that we want. Yes. And maybe even the doctor could be the action hero. So, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't see a ton of potential in them, but I do see potential to cut them, to divvy up these roles in interesting ways. Agreed. For your tastes, do we want to play these characters with more personality, or are we, is this like Bob the Fighter territory where you, if you're playing Fireball, you'd be more interested in um, sort of just like playing the doctor and let's just do it. Like I'm me with medical skills in space. Well, like I said, I, I went straight to pulp action rather mm-hmm. than procedure. So pulp action, especially in a, in a role-playing game, doesn't work if the characters are flat. They need to have hooks. They need to have specific personality quirks uh, that make them distinct and interesting to play with as a group. So yes, uh, with all that in mind, I would definitely deepen the characters. I would, as part of character creation, whichever way it went, actiony or procedurally, I feel like at least some part of the process where you're assigning at least a couple of quirks would be necessary. This whole thing, as I keep coming back to, gives me like an old school vibe. And what you're describing strikes me as old school characterization where like my primary thing is like I'm the fighter or I'm the thief but I also want to have fun playing this character and not just roll dice so I'm like a thief who you know I like to make myself fuzzy mittens out of my like fallen monster foes you know and so I <laughs> have this collection of different you know gloves that I wear like it that's not a whole personality but it's something for me to do other than roll dice and that I'm going to see if I die the next thief is not going to be exactly the same guy. Yes. This is the essence of pulp media is characters rarely are very deep, but they are still very distinctive. And so rather than come up with complex histories, you latch onto, you know, a stutter or something like that. You know, some distinctive feature that sets them apart and makes them interesting and unique and and that's where that's where the flavor comes in and aside from that it's just you know punching nazis or or flying you know in your rocket through space or what have you right right yeah you know what this reminds me of um a podcast i've recommended before and i i can't recommend it enough um mike quackenbush's kayfabe 2.0 he does you know some of these episodes are like pro wrestler specific but some of them are about creating characters for pro wrestling yes and he really gets into, because, I mean, you could hardly think of a more sort of broad medium to create and play characters in than professional wrestling. <laughs> it's and a good example, though, because each each individual wrestling match, there's so little time for a character's personality to come through. And yet, there are so many wrestlers that are so memorable. Mm-hmm. But you remember, like, four things about them. Yes. And they're all very distinct. 
I've heard that advice uh, from like the um, the performance center, the place where the WWE trains its wrestlers in Florida. Think of you developing your character and your entrance and everything in terms of like, if a kid were playing me, what would they do? Mm-hmm. So there's going to be like a hand motion or a pose or like a thing you do every time you enter. Yep. So it connects. And that seems to me very pulp. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think, generally speaking, role players could stand to be more other-focused when you create characters. Like, because it's easy to create a character who's great for you, but that doesn't convey. So let's let's talk as we leave characters about what we would want mechanically. Given what we've been talking about, about, like, what do we need? A hook. What do we not need? A deep personality. Yeah. What do we want on the character sheet? I feel like there should be a very small number of basic statistics or attributes and uh, i'm maybe we can play this like action cop procedural cop maybe give our own you know separate takes on it okay because from from like a, a pulpy action perspective i would want you know maybe no more than five attributes very simply named very clear what they're for um some way to get those character quirks in there uh, you know, whether it's a merits and flaws system or uh, even just a, lo- a looser ability to define quirks about your character. And a combat system that is very pared down, doesn't involve, you know, much muddling with specific distances or positions or anything like that, maybe even quite freeform. I can see that. And, I, and I'm happy to do sort of procedural cop on that. Although I think that we're maybe both a little more in the middle on this. We're like, we're not maybe so. extreme positions. But uh, when I think of like, what is more granular in a character sheet that I would enjoy, I think of something like um, maybe Mouse Guard, where like, there are a lot of skills in Mouse Guard, but they're quite specific skills. The action is relatively pared down. So like combat doesn't take forever. There's not like intense tactical positioning and stuff. But there's enough to grab onto there that there's a procedure. Like you take your turn in, in, you know, combat and then I take mine and I take mine and there's a list of actions to choose from Mm -hmm. so that it does feel tactical, which I think is important for that feel you're going for. In Mouse Guard, it's we're three mice fighting a snake. So like we got to figure this out. We can't (laughs) just like run in, you know. Um, It's all about the guard and organization and like how are we equipped? What skills can we use to maybe get around this problem? Yeah, I can definitely see that working in in Fireball, the theoretical uh, role-playing game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something just uh, like I would really be focused on concrete skills. And, and I would maybe push back against mechanizing these quirks so much as just like I'd have a place on the character sheet to write them down. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I would involve them in mechanics because I sort of see that happening in the spaces between. It's right. It's like those fuzzy gloves that I made from an owlbear. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's It's the stuff that we do because a lot of this, if we're doing it procedurally, is going to be so regimented. It's going to be you know, we have a certain length of time. We have to make these certain checks. We got to land the ship. How easy is it going to be to launch the ship from this train we've landed it on? Therefore, when we get out of the ship, if we want to deal with all our character stuff, like, oh, I really don't want Venus to get hurt because I kind of got this thing for her, even though she is the doctor and she probably should go. Let that be role-playing. Mm-hmm. Because then once we've done that and we get into the caverns, we're going to have to worry about, like, marching order. And, you know... Yes, you're going to have to see who gets kidnapped first because they're... The unlucky sucker who's in the front of the line or the back. <laughs> well, and see, that's that's where this dichotomy breaks down because both things are true of XL5. We absolutely have to worry about what order we go into the cavern in and like what ray guns do we have on us. That's true. You but can't really play it exclusively one way or the other. Be, yeah, because who's going to get kidnapped? Venus, for sure. Yep. Every time. Because this is still fundamentally an adventure story. Um, so we have to have somewhere built into that. And that's why I think like a nice granular full character sheet of these skills 
but we got to have something like fate points or Bennies on top. I would maybe do this with something like Savage World. You know, yes. Where you've got enough stats to make you feel like you've got a rounded character who's good at some things and bad yeah. at others. You know, there is kind of a there is kind of a pulpy sci-fi uh, version of Savage Worlds called Slipstream. Hmm. It incorporates, and it's it's been a while since I've read the book for it, but it incorporates a couple of those things, and it might actually be worth exploring as a possibility uh, hmm. for for adapting Fireball. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll talk about system later, but I think that we, looking at what we're shooting for in terms of characters, we want to encourage players to come up with a hooky personality, like a catchy thing about the character. We also want to then have the functional roles on the ship be important. In some way. Yes. You were talking about fewer stats. If we're going to have fewer stats, I feel like we want those stats to line up very neatly to functions on the ship. Agreed. Um, rather than be like, you know, you could run this with like lasers and feelings or something. <laughs> but, you know, there's not enough feelings really to support that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it, This really is a show about the different members of a crew and how they work together to solve a problem. So there need to be at least the right stats to support that. Let's let's talk about setting a little bit. And you know more about this world than I do. You you have a longer history with the show. So when and where are we? Like what's what's cool about this? Like sell me on your sell me on your Fireball XL5 campaign. What what world do I get to play in? Good question. Um I, if I were running, like I said before, I I probably wouldn't dwell too long on any particular setting because the show introduced such it, like individually distinct settings in such rapid succession from episode to episode. Mm. I think that Space City being a constant base of operations, you know, and somewhere where, that everyone always comes back to to some degree, uh, that would be interesting. And as you said, there's a lot of room for development there. It's a huge place. People live there in addition to working there. Uh, there's lots of room to explore Space City, uh, you know, as a as a setting, but I think that when when folks go out on missions, they might end up at the planet made out of metal, or they might end up in a scary cave full of blob creatures, or they might end up in uh, you know the Space Alps. Mm -hmm. Any of those could be really interesting. the The characters, even though the primary villains in each episode are usually aliens, <laughs> pairs of aliens, mm -hmm. um, they almost fight the uh, you know the setting as much as they fight the aliens you know they they run into pools of lava or you know pockets of poison gas things like that and those are obstacles that they need to overcome in order to maybe even get to the aliens that mm -hmm. are opposing them yeah yeah that and that goes to the um the larger world right which is like one thing i think you have to do is kind of shut your brain off about space travel because there are certain things we know like there's one episode where it's a big plot point that they go faster than the speed of light. Yes. That is not the standard state of affairs with these ships. They don't typically exceed the speed of light. It doesn't seem like it. <laughs> because, it seems, because it says they're like in uncharted territory yeah. when they do this, right? However. Somehow they get to other planets. They get to other planets that seem to have a sun. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, we just have to like accept like, okay, it's hand sectors of space. Yeah. It's very pulpy. Like yeah. there are these different planets. Each planet has a different kind of gimmick and they're out there somewhere where they're far away, but we can get to them. Given that though, you're right that like we have our, our choice really of all these different kinds of planets, whatever the GM can come up with is available. But then you also have your home base. So I really do. I love that dichotomy. Yeah, I like that you that you can have a familiar place to explore and, and deepen. Mm -hmm. But then there's also that variety for the adventure factor on the other end of the mission. Again, going back to old school D&D, that this reminds me so much of, that is that town you can come back to the tavern thing. Yeah. Because that's where our NPCs can live who we don't need to worry about them getting killed off. 
but then each adventure can be to people we haven't met before and strange places, you know, we can go through the magical portal and have our dungeon adventure or even go to the old west, whatever we want to do. Yep. Um, that would work really well for this. It is in the future and it is on earth. Yes. Um, right. It's some, like, some number of hundreds of years in the future. If, if I'm not mistaken, I think it is exactly 100 from the time. The sh- I think it's 2162. Yeah. Well, but they, they did a thing, a, a cheap trick where they didn't use BC or AD. They used some other time system. So mm. it really could be any time. Okay. They chose a, a, a number that was in probably the 2000s somewhere. I think, I think your number was right. But they also called it like galactic, you know, age 2162 <laughs> or whatever. So it really could be any time. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't noticed the galactic age there. Yeah, maybe more important than the specific year then is like the state that the Earth is in. Which we yeah. do get quite a bit of detail about, albeit in the background. It's it's one unified world. Yeah, it seems like a one world government at this point. Perhaps even a series of worlds, although we never see any other you know home worlds of of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's so characteristic of this show, and I think it's it's one of the challenges and one of the fun things about working with its setting is that we're really like laser focused on you know Venus and Steve and their little life together. Yeah, it's like a, this very like swinging sixties lifestyle where they're like <laughs> they work together and he's her boss, but they're also boyfriend and girlfriend, and they kind of travel around the galaxy. And meanwhile, it's like, like Sunny and Cher in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's like there's one world government like something has brought peace to Earth. There's a world space force. Except the, except they still exclude the gypsies. So so they're not at Utopia just yet. Yeah. Well, what is the show's authorial voice on whether we need <laughs> the Nomadians? Like, not that that's the meaning at the time or what you would have picked up watching it when it was broadcast. But now looking back on it, there is this real sense of like, okay, this is if 1960s Western values took over the world. This is what you would get, even more so than like Star Trek that comes just a few years later, which I think is harkens back to a sort of mythical basic humanity that will relieve us of a lot of the social ills that are plaguing the 60s. Yes. It's it's a more thoughtful utopia. Yeah. And Fireball XL5 is more like the utopia that would be if housewives were still a thing. Yes. It's it's a lot of people people who would describe themselves as colorblind, I think, you know, like white people who have moved beyond race being an issue in their right. society. When I look around, I sure don't see any black people. It feels like racism is <laughs> solved, right? Um, oh, but how did they solve it? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of that going on. And, and I think that the treatment of Venus in particular, like the fact that she has no personality other than being a woman, really at all. Right. And we didn't really, we didn't talk about any of the episodes where, where Jock uh, talks about his feelings on women uh, but but the engineer, I mean, he he just flat out says stuff like women are brainless and you know that kind of thing. It is a it's probably the most awkward thing to watch about the show is watching him spout off about how he doesn't think women are good for anything and they always break stuff and they're clumsy and blah blah. Yeah, yeah, it's that that whole the the whole like even more than the sort of implicit racism, the overt sexism of the show. And the fact that that's magnified onto a sort of one world, one earth utopia, uh, it's challenging for adapting this material. Not that like, if you were going to, you know, play this with a bunch of, you know, 10 year olds who want to play spaceships, obviously you're not going to like. <laughs> yeah, we won't with... be covering that in great detail. <laughs> yeah. But if we're trying to sort of decode the setting and figure out like, what world do we live in here? It's a very interesting part of it. And I think there's, as we'll talk about later in Gritty Reboot, there's a potential to really address that in a. Agreed. Yeah. A more thoughtful way. We've talked about the fact that there's this big fleet of fireball ships. 
right? There's a ton yes. of them. At least 30. You were saying you, there was like a Fireball XL, 51. Uh, yeah, there, there's, there's some great number of them. And one thing I like is that there's a variety of sectors of space. So like in The Day the Earth Froze, XL-27 was uh, – it was sent to patrol, I think, Sector 29. Yeah. Right? That's nice because unlike – again, to make the comparison to Star Trek where each ship kind of has its run of the whole – Anywhere. The whole quadrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each ship is really devoted to its own thing. So even though we're doing sort of Planet of the Week anyway, there's no question of like other ships getting involved in your stuff. So you don't need to do – Right. They're the beat officer in that sector. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so anything that happens there automatically is your problem. And barring catastrophe, anything that happens elsewhere is not. So there's a tremendous amount of freedom to craft your plots. And even if you wanted to move this in the direction of play with more continuity, it would be really fun to almost do a hex crawl through your sector. Agreed. You know, this this puts me in mind of like Traveler, where you could procedurally generate new planets in your sector. Yeah. And then you would actually get to go back to them. You know, you'd get to have like the gradual revelation of these new planets and start to build a sector. Maybe some of these aliens know each other. That's departing from the show. But it's- yes, but it's an interesting departure. And it's a way that you could breathe like complexity into this setting, which is very thin, naturally. Yes. Yeah, it's it's one of those cases where you have a, a setting that is sketched, but it's sketched in such a way that it invites you to fill it in. Yes. Um, you know, there's all this space. Simply revisiting these worlds suddenly opens up a new level of complexity here, but we're still building it out of the same bricks. We're still doing an adventure where you go into an unknown part of space, and it could be anything, and we go there and have a romp. And then just gradually over time, as so often happens in role-playing campaigns, that becomes something deeper, mm-hmm. just emergently. What about the like salient technology of this world? Because that's a huge factor. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of it that still just isn't like most other things in the show. It's not described consistently. For example, we don't know whether or not robots are sentient beings or not. Right. Uh, sometimes they appear so. Sometimes they don't. The spaceships, obviously, they can go to different planets. We don't know if they're getting there through, you know, going faster than the speed of light or if they're somehow folding space and they don't need to go faster than the speed of light. Uh, none of that is explored in any detail. And why should it be? It's a show for eight-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think, once again, it could provide a template for for exploring and deepening. There could be an effort made to make this a little bit more detailed. Mm-hmm. But I also don't know that it's necessary. Yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in what the technology allows us to do in this case than sure. I how it works. And, yeah, yeah. And, and like because there are cases where... We really want to explore that as a sci-fi premise. Like there are whole sci-fi stories built on like a mode of propulsion and what that mode of propulsion means. And that's great. But in this case, what's more interesting is, again, to go back to Traveler, right? The more or less explicit premise of Traveler is what if information traveled at the speed of people again, right? Yeah. The sci-fi trappings are just about creating that world. Here, I feel like there's something similar where what we have is an extension of sort of this... 1960s emerging television age technology expanded into a cosmos that that we like we talked about last time the key here is you've got to go out into space to explore it like this is the logic of the space race right it's not yes. to look at the moon. you got to go beyond the moon. <laughs> yeah you got to get there like how do we yeah. know if there's aliens on the moon if we don't go beyond the moon 
And this is those people, right? They don't have, obviously, cell phones. They don't even really have communicators, like on Star Trek, as far as I can recall. No, they have some radio that they can use on board the ship to talk back to, to Space City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, that's a tech level that is, like, if the 1960s U.S. military had done an expedition like this, they would have had field radio. <laughs> yeah. Right? But that's not the logic. This, this I think, on a, on a really deep level... This is like if you ever go out and look at like the covers of, you know, pulp magazines and you see like the shirtless man on the island fighting like gorillas or like (laughs) the one where he's fighting all those crabs on the beach, you know, like this is that. This is like we go to an exotic place and we have these adventures. You're on your own. Yes. Mm -hmm. We're far from civilization. There's always that problematic trope of like the evil natives and you can replace them with aliens and sci-fi and, you know, that's a – transition that i think we've gradually made across the 20th century into the 21st century yes um, not in 1960 though <laughs> not we haven't no. <laughs> been there but but i think um it's it's more palatable to watch that than it is to watch a contemporary show about going and like fighting the cannibals in darkest africa right oh yes but it's the same story it is yep and, and i think that the technology the important thing about adapting that would be to make sure because tech is always weird to adapt because on a show it can do whatever you want the writers decide if like the transporters can beam through shields this week in a game, <laughs> the players are looking at their character sheets trying to solve a problem. Yeah. And you need to be able to go to the rule book and say, can this do this? Yes mm-hmm. or no. Yeah. And so a lot of thought needs to be put into making that technology, even if we're not going to even make a nod toward how it works, like the oxygen pills. Right. Right. Like those are pills that you take that not only allow you to apparently breathe in space, but also survive a vacuum. Right. So you can just bob around in space if you want, because that's a very easy way to move a marionette. Exactly. Meta-wise, it made sense. You don't have to put a spacesuit on a puppet. Yeah. Uh, you can swallow a pill and now you can breathe in space. Uh, but that canonized it. Mm-hmm. Oxygen pills are a thing in Fireball XL5. Yeah. And, and I don't want to have to explain to players how an oxygen pill is supposed to do this. No. But what I will tell you <laughs> is when you are outside your spaceship... You better have swallowed one of those you, pills. Yeah, you've got to take an oxygen pill. There's an episode, too, uh, the same episode where they go faster than light, where, like, Zuni eats all the oxygen pills yep. and they end up in trouble, right? <laughs> so you do need your oxygen pill. You can't just wander around out in space. If you do, we're not going to worry about vacuum. We're not going to worry about breathing. We're not going to worry about temperature. You're just fine in space. As long as you took an oxygen pill, you just get to basically float around. You don't even really need to worry about, like, how are you getting from place to place. There's a lot of sort of... I, mean, I can't really see what they're doing, but they certainly don't have any trouble getting where they want to be in space. They don't need to... This isn't like that episode of Doctor yeah. Who where I had to like bounce the tennis ball off the other ship to like yeah. get the momentum. <laughs> well, needs. they mentioned those thruster packs several times during yeah. the series. I, I assume that they're they're okay in the vacuum as well. Yeah, it's it's fine. Like I, this is the uh, that's a great example. I wouldn't ask you even if you're bringing your booster pack. Right, you would have it. Ship. And even yeah. if we didn't establish it before, if you're like, I'm going to go to the other side of the ship. I'm not going to bust you. And if another player tries to bust you, I'm going to say, well, you got your booster pack. Yeah. You're fine. Move, go wherever you want outside the ship. Yep. Because um, it moves the action along and it should be, it should be an action-y dramatic thing like a pulp TV show. Yeah. And it would be very out of character with this show if we had to worry about how we're moving in space. Right. Because the situation is fundamentally an adventure story situation. There's a leak in the ship. And we got to go try to, like, patch it up somehow while we're under attack. Yeah, rather than spend 10 minutes arguing about all the preparations you need to make in order to get out there, you just get the hell out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's – I mean, you mentioned the robot thing, which I think – let me ask you this because we keep bringing it up about these robots. Putting aside the sort of deconstructive, like, gritty reboot approach, if we're just playing XL5 and we want it to be not exactly like the series but in the tone of the series, Mm -hmm. you even thought about playing a robot. Are we interested in – talking about the way these robots fit into society or is it better for them just to be there 
I think that's gritty reboot territory. <laughs> okay, yeah, because so like because there is a version of this where we could do like, oh, there's a you know there's a robot governor too. Like no problem, he's programmed <laughs> to be a governor. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, sure, I, but I don't know that that it, that is never once explored in the show. Not mm-hmm. a single time. Sure. Robots are just there. If a if a GM wanted to you know to to create a planet that had a robot governor, I don't think that would be out of place for a second. But I also don't think that it's something that's necessary to talk about unless it's a plot point. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's that's really where that line is. We could go and do more sci-fi exploration of technologies elsewhere. But when it comes to like our way of life at our home base, we are firmly in the 1960s. Right. Uh, the space 1960s. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, our butlers are robot butlers, but they're still just butlers. Yeah, so so I think I think we're on the same page about that. One more thing. It's an aspect of setting that's almost invisible in this show, but we are members of an organization with ranks, and we go on missions. We have a boss. That's always a, an interesting thing to introduce to a role-playing game, where, like, one of us is the captain, you know? Yeah. Do you see that coming into play, or do you think that the full aspect of this would totally overwhelm it, and it wouldn't matter who outranks him? It, it might be another one of those things that, that just comes into play, you know, like... F- for example, Steve, Steve tends to order people around, mm-hmm. um, but that also doesn't mean that Venus can't step up and, and just take unilateral action. Sure. Nobody gives that a second thought because the plot needs it. Because <laughs> the plot needs it. I think that the rank and file nature of, is it just called the Space Patrol or something? I, I can't uh, remember now. World Space Patrol? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I think that makes sense to acknowledge uh, in this game, especially considering what we were talking about earlier about how everybody has kind of their own sector of space. Mm. Uh, I think it makes sense to flesh out the organization, uh, at least just to have the terms out there. But I don't think that the game should be constructed in a way that the captain always tells everyone what to do, and that's the way that it works. Yeah, that's generally the best practice. And I think there are games where... There's enough of that interpersonal stuff mechanized that we can let the captain be theoretically in charge of everyone. But then there's also this whole sub thing going on about personal relationships. That's right. not happening here. No. <laughs> so much of it is going to be like, how are we approaching the planet? How are we landing? We don't want one player to be in charge of all of that. Yeah. Um, so I would I would tend to agree that we we maybe want to stay away from... And that doesn't happen in in other you know sci-fi uh, radio shows or TV shows you know Flash Gordon that that never happened everyone could act with agency whenever they had their own superhero moment. It, this brings to mind you know we've um, at the the library game we were referring to last week we did uh, some Star Trek sessions yes uh, that I ran and you played the captain in that I did I found that if anything maybe be just because of the nature of the plot or the nature of Star Trek. If anything, you were less immediately in the mix than a lot of other characters. Yeah. Out of the two sessions, one I took part directly in an away mission, and the other I stayed on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, even in the first session where I was down on, on this space station, I did a couple of things, but mostly it was just overseeing and waiting for moments to do, you know, captainly diplomacy with other mm-hmm. with other leaders. Uh, I, I, I initially gave, you know, I, I said who should be on the away missions, that kind of thing, but I did very little to directly influence how people tackled problems. Mm, that's an important distinction. And, and I think that that's cooperation between GM and player as well. Yes. Because one of the things I made sure to do, because rank is, you know, ubiquitous in Star Trek, is I tried to keep track of who was the ranking officer in a given situation and look to that player first 
not that character, mind you, but that player mm-hmm. for like the key decisions shaping the situation. In the yes, scene. and that worked very well. The whole system worked very well the way that we employed it. Yeah, I, I was happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that it didn't feel like there was a tremendous amount of characters stepping on each other's toes on the basis of rank. And I think the same thing would be true here if, for example, Steve's player is the one we look to for like who's leaving Fireball, who's staying on board Fireball. Mm-hmm. But then, as you say, in the moment, everybody knows how to do their jobs. So Venus knows how to go through the caverns, do her doctor stuff. She doesn't need Steve looking over her shoulder. And Steve's player is not going to be telling her every move she makes. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can sometimes happen. I think especially when you do this, like, regimented play. Like, I've sort of been talking up this, like, raid on the dungeon style of play. Right. It absolutely invites the loudmouth player to tell everybody else what they're doing. Yeah, the overseer. Yeah. Uh, that's really a tricky line because... The group benefits greatly from someone to collect opinions, organize, streamline, and come to one unified conclusion about what we're doing. Oftentimes, the guy who thinks he's doing that is not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that's always tricky to navigate. So I think actually in character rank can help with that somewhat because it makes clear whose job it is to make those decisions. And it draws a circle around those decisions. And like outside of that, just because you're the captain doesn't mean you get to tell her how to play her character. Right. Um, you know, I already asked you to do the captain stuff. So we're done with that. And now I'm looking at her. I think that that is a nice, subtle way to move the action around the table. Let's get into this gritty reboot. I cannot wait to talk. About oh, yeah. I'm excited. to show up. So so you hit me with your ideas first, because I got all these notes. Yeah. I, I think that we need to address the supposed utopia first off. <laughs> sure. I, I think that what appears to be a perfect society where everybody is happy all the time uh, is a heavily uh, rose-colored glasses sort of uh, uh, it's a little it's a little darker under the surface shall we say I think the government of earth has a lot of hidden problems to work out uh, <laughs> some of which are very very worrisome there's something really interesting here about like how do we handle if we're gonna treat this as sort of a low-key dystopia how do we tackle it and I actually I love the rose-colored glasses because oftentimes when we do these dystopian stories, we want to focus on the, you know... Looking uh, to the future. And, like, the oppressed people. We, we want to focus in on, like, here are the people who are suffering and how, how much it sucks for them. Oh, yes, certainly. This is a show about people who are very happy with this society. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even Venus, who is the only real, like, main character who is... Who's not a white male. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and she's, like, she's the one who's under this. Yeah. But she's, this seems apparently perfectly natural to her that it's, you know, it's galactic year 2163 and she's the chief surgeon and she's making everybody coffee. <laughs> seems to be fine with Venus. Like, she doesn't ever comment on it, really. Sure. That's an interesting way to go at a future dystopia. That, like, it's so homogenous and it's so old at this point. It's so entrenched that everybody feels like this is heaven. Even the people being oppressed. Yeah. I mean, certainly nobody is sticking up for Zuni. No, definitely not. <laughs> He's treated as a beloved pet. Not that this show makes clear that he's not an animal, but the fact that he can, like, talk and that he walks around with them and that he occasionally shows these flashes of, like, there's an episode where he saves the day. Like, he's semi-empathic. Right. Um, And there's this print story, apparently, that says his problem is really that he's lazy. And if he weren't so lazy, he would be, like, treated more like a person. Yeah. And I I have not encountered this story at all um and i'd be curious to know do you know who wrote it was it was it one of the andersons we don't know based on my limited knowledge of this show and this production company i cannot imagine that jerry anderson is out there writing comic strips about these i wouldn't think so 
but depending on how canon we wanted to consider that story, that would make the treatment of Zuni more or less barbaric. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes a huge difference in terms of, like, setting, in terms of continuity. In terms of worldview, there's something very, like, just like we were talking about, like, these aliens are basically like the cannibals in Darkest Africa, only not quite so offensive because they're space. <laughs> yeah. Right? In the same way, if we've got this humanoid-looking creature living in the house, acting as a servant, basically greeting the guests who come into your perfect home in Space City, <laughs> like, there's a level of that being, like, that's a worldview that's a little distasteful, even if Zuni is not in any way analogous to a real-life person or, like, a press group. Right, yes. I feel an argument could be made under under any conditions that it is abuse of some sort. Yes. I mean, yeah. if somebody if somebody trained their dog to say hello when I came over, I mean, <laughs> that would be really impressive. But, yeah. they, like, there comes a certain point, like, is this dog also wearing a hat? Like, does this dog... Like, this is weird. It- well, and as in the circus, although it was technically a dream, mm. um, subjecting Zuni to such humiliation. He's capable um, of being angry because he's being he, mocked. Yes, he he understands that he is being made fun of mm-hmm. and reacts to it. And that's that's characteristic of his portrayal throughout the series. So yes. Even though it's a dream sequence, he has enough emotional sophistication to be embarrassed, to be bored, to feel like it's a drag, I gotta yeah. go do this. I mean, that's sentience. Yeah. Yeah. So even if he's not as intelligent as a human being, he's capable of enough emotional sophistication that it's maybe not cool to keep him in your house like a pet. So yeah, like there's, I think we could dig into that. This could get pretty dark. Oh yeah. If we if we want to <laughs> talk about this being like a group of people so entrenched in an imperialistic, racist and sexist system that they don't even realize it. And they think they're bringing the universe a gift by going out there in these rocket ships. I mean, and we can then see shades of that because it's like, okay, here comes the Jedim delegation. And they're trying to sow discord in our utopia. I mean, they're coming and telling... Get them out of here. Yeah, like, I mean, they were over there telling that other nation that we subjugated that they need to be on equal footing with us. <laughs> You're all banished. <laughs> and you, you trouble causers, you, you nomidians, nomadians, you get on a rocket ship, you can come back to Earth, but, you know, just for a day. And then in the morning, you got to leave and go into the blackness of space because you're disrupting our perfect system, you guys. <laughs> it's, it's real gross. Yeah. Let's um let let's talk about robots too, since I said some of that was a was a gritty reboot territory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we we could assume that there is some measure of sentience in robots, and through whatever device they are either socially subjugated or somehow you know physically subjugated, whether it's Star Wars style restraining bolts or you know, mandatory additions to their programming that keeps them following orders, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just seems to me that Robert acts with so much independence and agency from time to time that there's just no way that he's a simpleton. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think if we were to look at it culturally, could we maybe say in the worst case scenario, this is a society ruled by a, a... global military system more or less like the the highest authority protecting earth would seem to be world space patrol yeah that yeah i mean there's no mention of any agency or government (laughs) that they report to yeah homogeneity and conformity are so valued and so much the norm that even no distinction is made like who cares if the robots are sentient per se right because everyone is basically like they exist to do their job Mm -hmm. right no one would try to rebel against this system so whether the robots have the capacity or not is moot because they can't. They can't. They, if they were to do that, they would be broken. 
in the same way that if aliens came suggesting another way of life, or if someone on Earth wanted a different way of life, we would banish them. This opens up so many possibilities for like secret underground organizations in Space City. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, robots that go about their day following orders and then duck into uh, a heating duct and <laughs> have their little secret meeting about how they're someday going to finally be free. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, th this is so, it's such a unified system that it suggests a different way to do sort of a, um, almost a cyberpunk feeling game because yeah i, I was going there yeah, right I mean, then yeah this is this is so high tech and it's so like shiny and happy but yet if you imagine being someone who doesn't fit in in this society the places that you're hanging out are like very dark and very marginal mm -hmm. i feel like uh, when you think of playing something like you know cyberpunk or shadow run now what you're thinking of is like a 90s into 2000s dark gritty seamy kind of thing sure or even back to like the 70s, like looking at, you know, Mos Eisley or something like that. Yeah, Neuromancer or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's very different to imagine that in like the 50s or 60s, where you have an overarching culture that is not so porous to counterculture. Right. And so there is this thing of like, and I, maybe this is a crass comparison, I don't know, but like, it's not like 1990s, like the bully at school hates gay people. It's like 1960s. People don't know about gay people where I live. You know what I mean? Like if anyone yeah. ever found out, there would be violence, but it's like not even on the table. It's so deeply repressed that, uh, it, at least on, on like the, the veneer of the culture, mm -hmm. that it doesn't even come up from day to day. Yeah. Um, and that's- And yet it's there. It's like, it's unquestionably there. It's there, um, you know, among the people who are marginalized, but maybe more in focus for Fireball XL5. It's there in the intense normativity of our perspective characters. Yes. Like, of course, Venus has a thing for Steve. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, how could you not? They're two blonde white people in high-powered professional military jobs who, like, run the world, basically. Right. They're, uh, like, so when they get together, there's going to be, like, she's going to make him coffee. She's going to... She's going to celebrate the heritage of his successful family. <laughs> his trapezist ancestors. <laughs> by cooking him a fancy French dinner in their apartment that they get from the army. That all is, it's so intense that it's like, you immediate, it immediately brings to mind, like, does everybody live like this? <laughs> Where are the other people? Right. The answer is probably yes, except <laughs> for the ones who don't. Yeah. 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 There's, I mean, there's no sense in this show of like regular people. I, I'm trying to think of a situation where... We encounter pe like Earth people. That's true. Do we ever actually meet a civilian? I don't. I don't think I can remember a single instance. It seems like everybody's in space patrol, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and you know they can't be. But everyone on Earth lives in Space City. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. Again, it's it, it raises that question of like everybody here is so clean cut and has these like military jobs and access to all the stuff they need and seems to want for nothing and they're provided housing, but they're protecting somebody. Where are those people? How are they living? Yeah. And partly it's because it's a puppet show. But if we're going to like sort of deconstruct it, it's like this is all on the backs of people who do productive work instead of flying around in military jets shooting aliens. Yeah. It's, it's the very 1960s of it that makes it fun maybe to deconstruct. Because you could do this in, you know, the Federation. You could do this in other sci-fi. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we hardly ever see outside of Starfleet Academy, unless it's some holodeck thing that takes place in the 1920s or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, from time to time, even in the original series, we'll see like the colonists or something like right. that. But, you know, the Federation is like, it's similar in that if you sort of look under the surface, you wonder, you know, how does this all work? 
But here it's so naive, it's so smiley, and it's so classic sci-fi that I feel like there would be that extra level of irony of like, these characters think that they're living in a technological paradise. Yeah. That makes it that much richer to dig into. Literally the edgiest thing that we ever see in the show is that one shot of Commander Zero smoking behind his (laughs) desk. Like, that's it. That's (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean... There's the grunge right there. And even that, like, the military, this hard-ass military character with the cigarette, like, what this brings to mind for me is um, the... I had a teacher once who was explaining why he smokes. And he was saying it's because when you're in the army... If you smoke, you get a smoke break from running. (laughs) And if you don't, then you got to keep running. And of course, that's intentional because the military functions partly to addict soldiers to cigarettes because they're in bed with tobacco companies, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's part of how the military operates, at least at the time that he was in it. Right. So you have this like corporate military collusion to sell consumer products. And that's totally what happened to Commander Zero. Like, oh, yeah, this without thing, a doubt. <laughs> it's like smoking is, even as is that little bit of grunge. Commander- it's, it's still that further evidence of uh, deep dystopia within the veneer of this utopia. Yeah, he's he's the factory worker who is like starting to get a little bit of a cough because he's just about reached the end of his productivity for the capitalist system. And he is reaching <laughs> planned obsolescence. He is dying from the strain that's been put upon him. Um, man, I, this seems like really fun to me. I don't even know if I could bear, like, my, my biggest misgiving about this, so many of these shows, I'm like, oh, this is so sweet, let's not ruin it by deconstructing it. Here, it's that I don't know if I can deal with telling this story about Zuni. He is already such a sad, <laughs> empathetic figure. I don't know if I want to do the story about Zuni being, like, a sentient being. <laughs> All right, all right. Um, let's let's talk about our final stuff. Let's get back to, to canonical XL5 here. What are the pros of gaming Fireball XL5? You get to start fast. You can come up with really interesting characters pretty quickly. You get a good, like, rompy story to it. And if you run it right, you can do it in an evening and have a memorable evening and not have to plan for next time. I'm with you on all that. I mean, it's uh, that's what I have in my notes here. The character engine is great. The story engine is great. It's so easy. I think also that the 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 gritty reboot aspect of it that we talked about, whether you want to go that dark or not, there are things here to be explored from a modern perspective. So there's an- oh my god. I mean, and doing it in this sort of gritty reboot form completely changes the feel of the game. I mean, it, it to me, it moves it from a game based on a series of one shots to like a gradual overthrow of the corrupt <laughs> space patrol, you know, via subversion and, and long-term character development. They're almost like two different games. I mean, they, they are two different games yeah, fundamentally. Very much so. And I think, but drawing from that same aspect of the, um, of the series and of the setting, which is that it is this like, very bright, optimistic 1960s vision that has no self-consciousness about right. its, its dark side. It's just a question of whether or not there is something underneath worth exploring. Yeah. And in the vanilla version, the answer is no. And in the darker version, the answer is yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I also think that as we keep, or as I keep talking about this procedural aspect, there's a certain appeal there. You were talking about playing this as almost a board game. 
that appeals to me. Like mm-hmm. playing this, like almost like Arkham Horror, where it's this cooperative. We're all going to play characters, yeah, quote yeah. unquote. But really, what we have is like a character sheet. So like, I'm the doctor, and you're the captain, and you're the engineer. And we're going to go through a series, sort of a scenario, and we all have to make sure, like, oh, make sure on your turn that you make this roll so that I can make this roll on my turn. We're all working together. Yeah, a little bit of collaboration. That seems really fun. And that shades into tactical tabletop role playing. Without getting really, really granular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't need to be heavy on rules to be that play experience. It just needs that little bit of peril and that little bit of regular procedure. Like, this makes me think of sort of like how hack and slash D&D groups will have the door breach procedure. Right. Every time, I'll listen at the door, we'll check for traps. Incidentally, I think that this is a game that especially could benefit from music and sound effects. Oh, I I think, you know, especially since it's... Uh, it, it's kind of based the show even is kind of based on the formula and sensibilities of pulp radio. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much room in it for, you know, ray gun sounds and the crashing of, you know, ice pillars above your head and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm with you completely on that. It's uh, you touched on it briefly and I'm glad you did. Cause it's not the sort of thing I tend to pick up on very much, but now that you mention it, mm-hmm. the sound in this show is really important to its feel. It is. Um, and uh, I would definitely want to bring that to the table. What about cons of gaming this? It could get very formulaic if you don't find ways to spruce it up, to keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. It would be really easy for it to get samey. I think that's the main con. Yeah, I think that's the main problem. And one of the things that attaches to that is that there's not a tremendous amount of structure here to deal with the issues that this raises, whether it's thematically or structurally. There's so little to this show that when we get into the question of like, well, how are we going to expand this? How are we going to deal with how formulaic it is? Why don't we start sort of building a campaign of like, oh, we're at war with one of these planets. So it's going to be week to week, continuous. Right. There's so little in the show. You're doing a lot of original work to make that to make that happen. There's plenty <laughs> of room, but there's not a lot of scaffolding for you to start approaching like, well, what happens when we need to send another fireball? Like, are there other yeah. kinds of ships? Are there like marines? There or? could be, but you would have to create them because yeah. there is only one kind of ship. It's Fireball. <laughs> yeah. And there's really only one kind of episode. I mean, there are, there are weirdo episodes, but like there is one plot structure that works. Whereas, and again, something like Star Trek, we can identify right. like at least four or five different kinds of formula for a Star Trek episode. Yeah. I think we can probably agree that this is gameable. Yes. We can play this um, despite the despite the cons with it. So what systems, and we've talked about a couple of these, would you go to, to to run a campaign of this? Yeah, I would have to go back and look at it for for sure. But I know that I would be interested in exploring the Slipstream uh, version of Savage Worlds for this. It comes with its own little pocket universe to play around in. And, it, you know, it's something about it, an evil space queen, you know, t- keeping hold on this little micro dimension, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think that could be thrown out and replaced with the Fireball XL5 universe and with some sprucing up uh, would would probably work pretty well. As we both know, Savage Worlds is pretty fast as a system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really rules light and, and just – but it still manages to keep some of that sort of tactical nature to it. And it has the, the sort of fate point uh, yeah. attribute to it, which I think is important in any game where the heroes usually win. Uh, mm-hmm. Like there needs to be those moments where uh, Deus Ex Machina can step in. I agree with that. And I think that the implementation of those points does a lot to deal with like, are we doing genre emulation? 
Are we more interested in like the player's experience to make sure that they win when it counts yeah. or that they get to define their own story? So there's different ways of implementing it for different purposes or like the story points in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. But something like that is vital here just because adventure story style coincidence plays such a big Yes, there needs to be a fudge factor. Yeah. Uh, the other system I think I'd like to pitch as a possibility because it's, it's almost designed for exactly this kind of thing uh, is called Cosmic Patrol. Uh, and it's published by Catalyst, who I think also do Shadowrun. Uh, and it is designed as a rules light, rotating GM, uh, like rockets and ray guns, pulpy sci-fi RPG. Okay. Um, it is cool because it has the quality I mentioned before, where it just has a few simple stats that govern the character. And it has a way to get the quirks of the character out Really, really distinctly, uh, in the sense that you don't have a list of skills or, or some analog of that, but rather you write down a whole bunch of basically catchphrases that your character mm. has, uh, called cues. And all your character's decisions ought to kind of draw from these aspects of the character's personality brought up in these cues. Hmm. So, you know, Steve Zodiac can have cues like, okay, Venus, let's go. And, you know, and rock and ray guns, things like that. And hmm. and so all of these little catchphrases and, and um, things that they may say or do or feel all determine the way that your character ought to react to circumstances and situations. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it, it's really neat. Uh, I've I've played it successfully once. Uh, it ran really smoothly. Everybody got going really fast, and the story moved quickly too. There's not a lot of like raw content in the core book in terms of equipment or anything like that. You basically just create your own weapons and armor and that sort of thing, and you do it in communication with the GM, with the original GM, uh, and just make sure that it's reasonably balanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the person who leads the game changes over the course of the game where there are circumstances where it can kind of change hands. It can move to the right or what have you. Mm. So people can interject and add complications to the story. You know, maybe you're, you're fighting on the planet's surface against a bunch of insectoid people and somebody can spend a point in order to, you know, get a rock giant into the fray as well. And suddenly you have this whole new thing to to deal with. And then that person might turn into the leader of the game. And so it'll rotate through and through and through. And so that's kind of a cool way to get everybody's perspective in the story um, to keep things fresh so that it's not all coming from one brain um, and to just keep things interesting and moving. That seems really cool. And it, and it maybe. You know, this is a half-formed idea, but it also ties into how characters tend to slip in and out of this plot, and some of the characters are back home. Some people are routinely are getting like left behind <laughs> yeah. the fireball. That makes a lot of sense that maybe like when that changes hands, your player character stays behind on the ship or whatever. Sure, it doesn't necessarily matter if if somebody begins to play a lesser role. It's just kind of a product of the game system. Yeah, yeah. So that that sounds really promising. I'm not familiar with that system, but it sounds ideal for this. Yeah, it's called Cosmic Patrol, um, and I don't think they're publishing new content for it still, but the core book is not very much uh, to buy. You can get it in hard copy or PDF. And it doesn't sound like a game that lives or dies on support, because it seems very Nope, it is a very simple, very pared-down, strong, high-concept thing. Yeah. It's ready to go out of the box. 
You mentioned a specific uh, slipstream for Savage Worlds. I was going to mention Savage Worlds as well. Um, I think that would have the right balance of kind of crunch and and uh, the bennies, as you mentioned. We, we've been playing Star Trek recently, and I think that would be... It's it's like it's a little too much gun for this, right? Because it, it goes to yeah. all this interpersonal stuff, values. But I think if I were... For example, if I were going to make an original system for this, I would look there for inspiration because some of the things are spot on. Like the way that the different uh, roles in the ship are laid out and they give you certain skills... Functions on the ship are basically laid out as core stats so that, like, everybody has an engineering score. Yes, and it has the momentum system, which works well as a fudge factor for when you need that deus ex machina. Yes, definitely. An implementation of momentum that is more pulpy, which I think would be perfectly easy to do. And, I, you know, they do a Conan game, so it's Ah, going to work, right? (laughs) Um, Something like that would work really, really well here. Um, So, yeah, I think there's there's something to scavenge from that, but it's overall, it's too much it covers too much that doesn't have a place in fireball xl5 but perhaps for the uh the darkest timeline version of it so to speak Mm, uh the the full star trek system may actually work surprisingly well for this i'd agree um it it could work if we want to go a little darker with it Uh, for other ideas i mentioned traveler a couple of times there's just something that seems satisfying to me about running this with traveler because traveler is like the og literary sci-fi oh man it would be so different It'd be, that would be a chore to, to make happen, but it might be worth it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of versions of Traveler, and depending on how tight you want to run it, I don't know, it feels right. What, what challenges do you envision for this? It's just such a complex system. I mean, the whole, although it would be kind of satisfying to go through, you know, Steve Zodiac's life path and mm. see what sort of trauma he encountered <laughs> in flight school or whatever. Um, it's, I mean, it might be kind of the same, the same problem as the full Star Trek system. It might just be a little too much meat on it. That being said, I think that the procedural aspects of like content creation in Traveler would be really useful for a Fireball XL5 game. You know, the ability to create planets or create races uh, just from a dice table uh, is pretty cool. What this makes me think of is how in the old days when people would adapt things, especially to D&D, but to all the old school games, I think there was less of a sense that we need to do genre emulation and more of a sense that like after seeing you know, Conan or after seeing Gandalf do this badass stuff. What I want is to play a character with similar equipment in a similar world and take my chances and see if I can accomplish something as heroic as them. Whereas today the design sensibility is let's start with you are as much of a hero as Gandalf, right? Uh Yeah. Yeah. Um, If we wanted to play this that way, I would suggest maybe if you want to do it with Traveler, you're right. Use the procedural planet creation. Maybe the GM starts the session not knowing who the evil aliens are, and you create it on the fly. Oh, yeah. As you go out there and explore. And don't do the sort of pulp genre emulation. Maybe allow a little bit of fudge factor, but stack it on top. Don't, don't you know, use a system that has it centrally. Maybe Mm -hmm. give everybody, like, a lucky coincidence token that they can turn in, like, basically get out of free, get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Just have it be like a one shot and really hammer home like the procedure of a world space patrol mission so that we we would play the launch sequence. Right. We would get off the ground, get the ship going. (laughs) Yeah. Do we get there in time? Like how, you know, let's manage these fuel reserves. It's it would be very different from the show because the show glosses over that stuff. But we do see that the characters care about it. You know, they spend. Yeah, that's a good point. And in that sense, it would 
it would complete. It wouldn't completely. It would. It would thoroughly divorce itself from the genre. But you could still. It, it would almost be like if you were to actually live the caricature that we're seeing, you know, of, of what actually takes place. Yes. Like Fireball XL5 is just the caricature of the reality of this whole world, which is taking place in the Traveler system. Yeah. It would be pretending that that world is real. Let's operate inside of it, which is much more complicated than the show is. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I'm I, sold. Yeah. I don't want to do that every week, but once it would be fun. Yes. Go on the mission, especially because with no genre emulation, the aliens might kill us. So we, <laughs> actually, we actually have to have like... Yeah, there would be stakes in that game for sure. Yeah. Um, and speaking of going a little bit darker and maybe dying, another thing I would recommend is if we're going to do like the deconstruction version of this, because it is so surface happy and shiny, paranoia. Um, oh, yes. Doing this as like basically either either set paranoia in this world or more likely have like the, the you know, prime minister of world space patrol or whatever he is. Be the, the computer. The commander be, take the place <laughs> of the computer. Yeah. Um, paranoia. Using that system preserves this whole, like, homogenous society idea mm-hmm. where everybody is the same and cheerful and happy and, and everything's great, mm-hmm. except, of course, there is a massive undercurrent of difference and suffering and and oppression. But everybody has to pretend like it's not there. Right. Which is the key thing to making paranoia fun. If the subtext of how miserable we all are ever reaches the surface, then paranoia becomes dark in an unfunny way. And kind of like, yeah, we all realize. And way less fun. Yeah, we already know. Yeah. If everybody pretends to be happy because that's what you're supposed to do, but we can sense that undercurrent of discontent and secrets, that's when paranoia is really fun. And I think also the the color grading system could easily be used to apply to rank in World Space Patrol. Sure. We could take literally the idea that everyone is in World Space Patrol and say that basically... When you catch your first intergalactic commie spy, you get upgraded to red clearance. <laughs> and from then on, <laughs> um, you know, you might occasionally be called upon to see if, like, have they infiltrated your neighborhood in Space City? Right? <laughs> um, you might show up with, you know, the body uh, dragging it behind you to uh, the big building in Space City and say, oh, yeah, they were spying. They were they were dealing with the Nomadians. I caught her at her crystal ball and I had to kill her with my ray gun. Congratulations. You're now orange clearance. <laughs> Congratulations, Colonel. Prepare for launch. That, that I think, could be really fun. <laughs> Here's an experimental ray gun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Professor Maddox belongs in that Oh, world. yeah. Yep. He, he, R- he totally does. He explains the existence of R&D and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, the, the exploding coffee pot from Flying Zodiac <laughs> is a perfect example of paranoia-grade technology. Yeah, yeah. And then just, you know, the, the usual suspects, I think, if you wanted to do this in a very pulpy way, move away from the procedure. Something like Spirit of the Century, right? Fate in an early iteration designed mm. specifically for pulp that has tons of cool pulp powers and great stuff for, uh, you know, adventure, white wolf's adventure, um, would need a little bit of custom work to turn it sci-fi. Yeah. But given the level of character that you're dealing with, like if we had characters who had outrageous powers, there'd be more hacking to do. But when we're talking about like the daredevils from adventure who are basically like, you know, two fisted, you know, right. Like yeah, that, yeah. That really applies to a character like Steve Zodiac anyway. Um, so there's not a ton of adaptation that would have to be done. And the uh, inspiration system there does a lot of what we want from whatever Benny system we use in that it gives players that ability to nudge, to kind of fudge the game. Right. Just at the right moments. Reinforces genre. Yeah. Key. Like it's specifically for pulp. So it's not just like, I want to pull this, you know, out of my ass that I have this equipment I never had before. It's more like, what is your, what is your shtick? What is your pulp archetype? 
it's really reinforcing that, like what happens in like old movie serials and stuff that I think would help drive us toward that adventure story pulps, you know, movie serial feel that we want, um, which might be good if you have players who are less invested in those in that source material to have a system that fudges them in the direction of that. Genre. Right. Yes. So uh, that is it for this time. Eric, you still have nothing to plug? Nope. Uh, still go to your library. Yeah. They're all they're They're still great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, society is horrible. Uh, civilization is a lie. And if you'd like to learn more about it, visit your local library. Um, as for us, uh, you can contact us at Gameable Podcast on Twitter, uh, gameablepodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to email the show. Uh, we are gameabledisneypodcast.tumblr.com on Tumblr. That's where you can find links to all of our old episodes, including all the Saturday morning, all the Disney, all the Pixar episodes. And of course, you can rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We always appreciate that. This crazy month is almost over. We have a very special episode coming up next week. Please tune in for that. Uh, one of the Fireball XL5 characters will figure in that episode. So if you've enjoyed uh, these couple of episodes with Eric, you'll definitely want to tune in next week. After that, we're going to be on to another crazy month. In July, it is going to be Turtles All the Way Down. Four weeks of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with four amazing guests. So join us for more Gameable Saturday morning in July when we discuss TMNT. We'll see you then. This has been episode 48 of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast. Fireball XL5 is property of its owners. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons licenses, includes We Are Romantic Suiciders by Ryoma Maeda and Romantic Suiciders. Find their work at ryomamaeda.com. That's R-Y-O-M-A-M-A-E-D-A.com. One-Eyed Maestro by Kevin McLeod. Check out his work at incompetech.com. And Hitanas Mojadas by Polka Madre. Find their work at polkamadre.com. The Gameable Saturday Morning logo is by Claire Mulcarin. This episode is released under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license 4.0. Thanks for listening.